Welcome to The Brand Collective, a podcast about our favorite brands, featuring stories from the marketers and creatives behind them. I'm your host, Nick Ross. With me, your co-host, Mackenzie Koss. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Brand Collective podcast. Today, we have Blair Roebuck, Vice President of Marketing Science at Valtech and featured on Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Welcome, Blair. We're so excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. For those of us who are a little bit less familiar with marketing science, can you kind of break it down as far as your role and what you do at Valtech? Very succinctly, I help organizations transform their data into dollars. And so what does that really mean? Uh, I'll meet with C-level executives across Fortune 500 companies to understand what they define success as for their organization. And then I utilize data to achieve that success. We start with defining key performance indicators and then implement the tracking to collect the data on those KPIs. And then we use that data to drive the business forward, be it through strategic recommendations, personalization on the digital experience, or even identifying opportunities that are not visible to the naked eye, looking to help organizations use data as a revenue driver. It's it's just incredible. And for a field marketing that is uh, largely populated by liberal arts degrees, I'm sure, what excited you or was there a moment in your life when you were like, the data makes sense to me or the data is something that I can get behind and find new truths from? Yeah, well, it's funny. I think what appeals to me so much about data and metrics in general is that data and metrics are universal. No matter what your job is, we're all in roles that require data and we're all either measuring or being measured against something. And so I really like that it is that universal language in some ways. When I think about data, I love how you can peel back the curtain and learn about the intricacies of a business. You can learn what makes it work, what the pain points are, and what the opportunities are. It can be used as a tool for storytelling, for problem solving, for inspiration. So that's where that liberal arts kind of mindset can really be applied <laughs> in data, no matter kind of what your background is. You know, on the flip side, I love that metrics can hold us accountable. Accountable means not just measuring metrics for vanity's sake, but for true value. You know, I work with my team all the time and I say, what is the so what factor? And I think data can identify the what and the so what. That question of so what is a question that we all are looking to answer. And that's what really excites me about the field. Uh, Without giving up any, you know, corporate info uh, (laughs) that we might not be privy to, do you mind sharing an example? I've been so extremely fortunate to work with wide array of clients over the years with such fascinating businesses and business challenges. And it's really rewarding when you see a client who was data adverse, not just become data literate, meaning can they read the reports, but become data intelligent, which is can they take meaningful next action from the data? Example that comes to mind is a consumer packaged good company that had a general distrust of data when I first got introduced to them. And this distrust of data is quite common in organizations. Back to you know the, what we were just talking about, which is that intimidation around data. People think it's not for me because I don't have a technical background. When being introduced to this client and seeing this distrust for data, there was a cultural shift that needed to take place. We really had to break down these barriers. And we started by talking through their business challenges. From there, we were able to say, okay, here's the, what the business wants to achieve. How can we actually get there? And we audited their data ecosystem and figured out how to fit the data ecosystem to their business needs. Once we had the data in a consumable fashion, we then were able to create dashboards, which is a great tool 
for organizations looking to be data-led because it makes it consumable no matter your data literacy levels. Once we had that data literacy locked in through the data that was tracking properly in the consumable reports, we could actually teach them how to activate the data. And we did that through conversion rate optimization, also referred to as CRO. Our objective was to enhance the e-commerce experience to entice and invite more transactions. And so what we did was we said, okay, here's the business challenge you're trying to solve. Here's the data. And here's our hypothesis. If we implement this personalized experience, we believe that this will allow people to transact easier. And we run through a series of experiments. And by doing these experiments, we were able to project millions of dollars of revenue in a matter of weeks using this low-hanging fruit and this low-hanging fruit of data and transform the client into a data-first organization, which in and of itself has led to increased efficiencies in dollars. So that's kind of just an example from a consumer packaged good company that, like I said, was very nervous to deal with data, but in a matter of weeks, we're using it to drive business decisions. That's awesome. And really so many great science words. We had hypothesis. <laughs> we, <Yeah. laughs> we had results. We had experiments. Well, I always joke. I said, like, I'm talking eighth grade science here, right? Yeah. You know, you go into eighth grade science and you learn hypothesis structures and you have your if and then statements. Same mm -hmm. methodology applies here. And we even did this with, you know, a nonprofit client. It's always great when you can give back and your work has true value. And with them, the business challenge was very, very straightforward. They wanted to increase donations for a really worthy cause. And so put on our eighth grade science, you know, blast <laughs> on. And we started looking at the data to figure out what was working in the experience and what could be enhanced to entice donations. And we used heat mapping tools. We used analytics tools and then ran a series of A-B tests to find that optimal experience and increase conversion by 200%, which meant increasing donations by 200%. And again, it's about identifying what the business problem is and then figuring out how to tactically achieve that goal in a short amount of time. Oh, it's just amazing. When we first spoke, you mentioned data as a superpower. It feels way bigger than eighth grade science. It feels like this is some <laughs> serious adult stuff. <laughs> but also with serious Very adult fair. stuff, it feels like you're dealing with uh, data that's probably subject to a lot of governance and a lot of rules and a lot of you know changing based on the times. Um, can you also reflect on how, how that affects your work and your position? Yeah. Well, I think they actually go hand in hand, the, the superpower and the increased compliance. And I think that is to the consumer's benefit. It goes in a couple of different realms, but organizations have traditionally been focused on that final monetary transaction, you know, AKA did they buy from you or not? But if you're looking myopically at that final monetary transaction, you're actually overlooking the primary transaction that's taking place or must take place in order for that transaction, which is creating an experience that's deemed worthy of a customer's time and data. And so there's a paradigm shift that's happening, which is data is now a currency. It's how customers transact. Is it worth my time? Is it worth my data? And then is it worth my dollars? And once this data is captured, insights can be leveraged, friction reduced, personalizations unlocked, and thus increased revenue. And consumers are starting to become increasingly aware of this power with data legislation, such as GDPR, PII, CCPA. And because of this legislation, we're increasingly aware of the power being put back in our hands. And that means that we can be increasingly selective about how we want to, quote unquote, spend our data. And that means that the onus is on the business, the organization, to provide an experience that's worthy of our data. 
And I think that's a really powerful moment in the retail experience, in the consumer experience. There is that pendulum switch where it used to be the Wild West with data where everything was available for everyone to collect and analyze. And now GDPR, PII, CCPA is putting that power, that superpower back in the consumer's hands. Uh, Forgive me. I'm not a data scientist. Uh, But this is when you click accept cookies. This is when you click uh, be on the newsletter. These are all these little data points, these decisions that you make prior to that ultimate decision to spend money. Are these the points where where these companies are sort of tracking and taking in all your information? Absolutely. That cookie banner where it says, you know, accept cookies, that's where the transparency now is being placed on the organizations. And so that cookie banner says, here's what data we are going to track if you consent, and here's how we're going to use it. And so it's really about peeling back that curtain. And so you can actually read through that literature and say, okay, you know what, I want them to track my location, um, perhaps my gender, but I don't really need them to know anything beyond that. And use you know a tiered approach to personalization. And that means that organizations then have to tier their experience accordingly. And so there's actually three different types of personalization that exist. There's implicit, there's behavioral, and then there's explicit. So implicit is what can be implied about you. So I come to the website and you may know my geography, if I came from a specific campaign, and if I came from a mobile device, and if it's my first time. These are things that can be implied about me. As I navigate from your website, you know, from that homepage beyond, there's behavioral elements that you can track about me. And that will inform my contextual or behavioral personalization. So that's where you get, you know, you may be interested in dog food because you're looking at dog products. You may be looking at a website with shoes and it may say you may be interested in running shoes since you're looking at athletic gear. That's where you start to get that behavioral. The third tier is explicit and that's, you know, exactly who you are. So they're going to know it's Nick Ross and he has been a member of this company since 2012, don't get too scared. <laughs> the only reason that you can get there is if you consent and if you sign up. And that's where that tier comes to play. And so that cookie compliance banner that you see at the front is, here's what we're going to capture before we know you officially, if you're okay with it. But let us know what you're comfortable with. And here's what we're going to give you. Again, back to that transaction. If you give us some of this data, here's what you're going to get from it. And the journey that we are taking people on with this data compliance and with this tier personalization is start with a little, we'll personalize the experience and we'll create a relationship with you that allows you to feel comfortable that you're giving your data to a trustworthy source. But it does take time sometimes. Yeah, you want to feel taken care of. You want to feel personalized and curated, but you don't want to feel like there's like a camera on you in the bathroom. You know, like, I feel like there's like Absolutely. a spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard a phrase like that, but I like it. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, like, I feel like. don't want that. I use, I like to call it the mitigating the creepy factor, but your way works yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly, Thanks, that was the analogy I was going for is, is like, we, we don't want to cross yeah. that threshold into the like, what yeah. do they really know about me? Exactly. Um, and I think that's where the communication comes into effect, right? If we're able to. Yeah explain what the data is going to be used for, people are far more likely to provide their information because they understand, back to the idea that data is a currency, that they are transacting with that data. Is it predominantly in the online space or does this transcend into, you know, IRL experiences? Absolutely. I think you're going to be seeing more and more of this type of personalization in real life, in the store of the future. I think it's because of that transacting with data becomes more present in the retail space. 
retail is about an experience, right? You go to a shopping mall, you go to a store to look, feel, touch, smell, what have you. That's an experience. But at the same time, consumers have started to get accustomed to that hyper-personalized experience online, and they're expecting that personalized experience to continue into the offline realm. And so what does that mean? It means that retailers are now finding ways to bring the personalized experience from online to offline. And to do that, there's a huge reliance on data to understand your affinities, your preferences, and all of these are intended to elevate your in-person shopping experience. I just had an experience where I was wedding dress shopping and they literally could pull like an avatar for me on a iPad and show like what it might look like, uh, which was way beyond, you know, my scope um, because I thought I would just be looking at some in person. And I'm curious if that was just like the beginning because I feel like we've been logging onto store Wi-Fi and stuff for a while now, but store the future is that kind of where you could see it personally going is more of that interactive experience. You hit the nail on the head. We're already in it in some ways. The retail of the future is now. Uh, What you're referring to with the Wi-Fi is referred to as beacon technology. And what beacon technology does is it maps where people are in the store. And it allows us to understand better dwell times, underutilized shelving spaces, the real physical mechanics of the experience. And that's been happening already for years. And when you log into that Wi-Fi, you have that beacon technology, but where organizations will take it, of course, with your consent, is making sure that we can start to personalize perhaps what you were looking at online. If you were looking at a wedding dress online, or you've provided your dimensions or your preferences of fabrics, Then when you come to the store, if you log in, we can pick back up where you left off offline. And the vision is that we're taking those two separate monologues that you're having, where you're saying to the website, this is what I want. Or you go to the store and say, this is what I want. We're unifying it into a true dialogue where we're reacting to what you're telling us. And so your experience at the wedding dress store is very indicative of what's now and what is to come. I wish they had that at my barber because I feel like I'm the least confident describing what kind of haircut I want. And I wish there was I some sort of... I actually think you could be very successful with that app. I think yeah, there's something that'd be there. so good. Very yeah. few people walk out of a haircut thinking, perfect, that's what I was yeah. looking for. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Um, this is also fascinating. Uh, the heat mapping, it, it feels wild. And I feel like, I mean, personally, it feels like mm-hmm. they're like, Nick, you hang out by the clearance section a lot. Here's some clearance <laughs> websites for you. <laughs> um, do you, from your vantage, do you see this technology projected into the future five years, 10 years? Uh, and how does that look or or what changes in your perspective? So I think what will be interesting over the next few years is where data compliance goes in the offline space. I think that it's been really well-defined in recent years digitally. But as we move offline, I think it will evolve because what we're going to be doing with the data offline evolves. And I think right now, Beacon Technology will show where people are in general. It will be a heat map. So it'll show you where a lot of people are. You know, maybe we're all back at the clearance section <laughs> with Nick fighting over the goods. But it, will, it won't necessarily show who specifically are there. Where things are going to go is going to be being able to read your person and to be able to see perhaps your brand affinities. If you're at a clothing store and you're wearing a competitor's clothing store, they'll start to register that to show that perhaps you're in the demographic, but you could be seen as someone to convert. I think the notion of demographics will be delved into even further 
you know, to be able to scan someone and identify around what age they could be, perhaps what gender they identify as, and then pair that with your brand is a huge opportunity. I think that type of facial scanning, even your sentiment, your mood will be really important and enable sales reps to be able to understand this person is approachable, does not want to be engaged. That's the next level is reading more of the physical person than the device itself. This is a bit of a tangent, but I saw a web video where there was some store in, I believe it was Denmark. I'm going to just say Denmark. Uh, and they wouldn't let people in unless they smiled into this little image. Uh, what? And it, obviously, the video was very funny and uplifting. Like once the people realized that they had to look into this little face and smile, and then they were allowed into the store. But it also spilled a lot of these themes. It was like, are they are they capturing each each image as they come in? Are they, what are we doing here? Because it feels like yeah. I've been to a couple different stores of the future. Like at Mile High, where the Denver Broncos play, they have these registerless liquor stores where you literally just go in. What you, I think you put your debit card or your credit card when you yeah. first go in the store, and you just walk out with whatever you want, and it just tracks it through magic. I assume, obviously, um, <laughs> For sure. also known as data. But you know, yeah, people, same, same, yeah, same, same. <laughs> right. But it it just feels, uh, I mean, it feels there's something like delightful and futuristic mm -hmm. about it, but it feels like there's a lot of different ways that the retail experience can go. I like what you say about making that the experience online and the experience in person kind of seamless and how you can sort of interact back and forth. Um, I'm wondering if there's, if there's any other ways that that you see it going or ways that you see it maybe shifting in the way that people interact with uh, retail and with purchasing? Yeah. I mean, for me, when I say when, when I'm working with clients and we're talking about that 360 personalization, the ideal state that we work towards is one continuous conversation. And that's really, we think of traditional retail, we think about you know makeup, clothing, et cetera. It's a very intimate transaction when you're in person. And people can feel very much in the spotlight when they're in a store. Whereas when you're shopping online, you can hide behind a screen. And that has only amplified since COVID. People who were not online shoppers have been converted to online shoppers. So now the challenge is how do you get these online shoppers back in person? And it's, well, how can I ensure I don't have to repeat myself twice? Because the website knows my preferences. They know what I want. And I don't need to start from scratch with a sales representative on the floor at the store. And so when we're working with our clients, we're thinking about that 360 degree personalization and that one conversation. And so, for example, if I am looking at a makeup store and I identify a certain shade of lipstick that works for my skin tone and my style, I should have those preferences saved. When I go to a store, I don't want to start from scratch and work with a sales rep. I already know what my shade is. So there should be recognition of, oh, Claire, we actually know that you continually use the rose balm. Wonderful. Here's what you're looking for. We've already got a package up at the front for you. And here's some other products that we've seen you looking at that you may want to try on without obligation to buy. That will then entice me to try and experience, which is the benefit of being in person without feeling exposed or that I'm starting from scratch. And I think that's that ideal state that we're working towards. And it's not too far in the future. And a lot of our clients are even experimenting with that experience now, which is really exciting. This made me think of another guest that we had on recently whose studio designs experiential marketing 
for different product to bring like largely on online products into the real world environments for these pop-ups and events and things like that. Um, it made me think that it's like more on retail establishments to make their stores more experiential so that you might be going to a store just to experience all the senses and then go home and go right back online and figure out what you want. That's okay. I think that's been a paradigm shift that retailers have had to wrap their mind around. If you go to any mall nowadays and you just walk down the hallways, you'll see there's not a lot of inventory like there used to be. It's more about touching, feeling, select products coming into the store. And then they're encouraging you to scan the QR code and then save that product on your basket online. So there already is that transition towards understanding that you can buy, you know, there's buy online, pick up in store, but there's also look in store, buy online. And that is really exciting because I think it reduces the intimidation of being physically in a store and that intimidation to buy, but rather it's the encouragement to explore. And that's where retailers are really leaning into is that exploration because as so long as you can save your preferences digitally, you'll end up having that purchase. But they're focused more on experiencing and getting excited about your brand and product rather than feeling forced to get their dollars and credit cards out in that moment. You are part of a great organization called Tech Girls. And I was hoping you could kind of tell us a little bit more about the work that you do with them and why you initially got involved and were inspired to work with them. Yeah, I, I'm really passionate about giving back to the next generation of leaders, especially female leaders in technology. Uh, and Tech Girls is uh, an organization founded by Valtech. And I've had the privilege of being a part of the North American Committee since 2018 now. And Tech Girls teaches the fundamentals of coding, HTML and CSS, to girls ages 9 through 12. But it's more than just introducing school-age girls to the basics of coding. It's really more about empowering the next generation of leaders in a rapidly accelerating industry. And the future depends on their inputs. So I find it really rewarding. And as being part of the core team who brought the program to North America in 2018, watching it grow over the past few years has been fantastic. And since you know its initiation, I think we've helped introduce coding and technology to upwards of 250 young ladies who will be probably our bosses in, in <laughs> due time. What's really exciting is we're now starting to think about the curriculum beyond development and coding, because I think you know, the notion of STEM and the notion of uh, careers in technology is so wide ranging. You know, I'm, I'm a woman in technology and I focus on data analytics, uh, but we have developers, we have coders, we have UX designers, uh, we have strategists. All of these individuals are experts in technology but being able to broaden the definition and the horizons for these young women is really exciting. And even watching them innovate while they're in the sessions just shows how, you know, how bright the future is going to be. You know, these are going to be our future bosses someday and everything and how amazing to be able to uplift them and show them, you know, it's not a one lane that you have to go down. There's so many different possibilities and allowing them to also you know, utilize their imagination and everything in whatever role they want to be in is so awesome and rewarding, I bet. 100%. And I think, you know, the theme that we were talking about earlier about this intimidation around data, intimidation around technology, we have those impressions from a young age. And if we're able to break down those barriers and demystify these themes, the potential is just enormous for the next generation. And I think being a small, small piece of that is really exciting. At the beginning of the episode, we kind of got to 
drop that you were in Forbes 30 under 30 list, which is such an incredible honor. And congrats again on that amazing achievement. What does it mean to you to kind of be a part of that group? Thank you. I mean, as you said, it is a tremendous honor to be recognized by such an iconic institution and amongst such impressive individuals, you know, to be amongst a group that's dedicated to making a change in the world and defining what the future looks like in each of their respective categories has been extremely humbling, but also really motivating. And I think in the world of data, our work is made successful through an insatiable appetite for knowledge and for collaboration amongst all walks of life. And so being a part of this Forbes under 30 class has demonstrated that already. I've fostered meaningful connections in both business and beyond and really look forward to continue to challenge the definition of what the future looks like with my fellow classmates. But it's been really, really exciting. Do you mind sharing a little bit about uh, the process? How it worked in my experience, and it may change from year to year, but it starts with a nomination. You can self-nominate or you can be nominated by an individual who has you know, a very short amount of words to describe why this individual should or could be considered for Forbes 30 under 30. And should that initial application or nomination make it to the next phase, there is a questionnaire that the nominee has to fill out. So it's about 40 questions. And what was really great about the questionnaire is that it definitely asked you about your business acumen and your performance and your growth, but it also tried to understand who you are as a person. It asked you philosophical questions about what your beliefs are and your point of view about the future as it pertains to the economy, politics, what have you, because they're really looking for well-rounded individuals. And I think that rings really true looking at the bios that are in this year's class. But following that second round of questions, you submit your application and they say, you'll find out on the day of publishing. So it was a very, very exciting day where you got the email and then ran to the magazine stand. So it was a little bit of a movie moment. That's awesome. Do you remember where you were when you initially like found out I was outside my dentist's office waiting for just a routine teeth cleaning and suddenly it became the best dentist appointment ever. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Since we have some time, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind going through a little bit of your history personally um, and what led you to your role currently at Valtech. I think like most individuals, their career is very nonlinear. And for myself, I think... I was made so much better by previous experiences that led me to that next step. And so starting my career out, I worked at an organization that initially emerged 30, 40 years ago as a mailing list service company. Um, And, you know, when I joined about 10, 15 years ago, they had obviously had to pivot and they had pivoted from selling mailing list service to data and data sets. And it was the first time I had actually been exposed to seeing data as that currency. And so we would work with high fashion retailers, non-for-profits, and they would say, okay, here's the demographic we're looking for. We're looking for 18, 24 year old women for pajamas. And we would have data that we could then sell. And that then led to email campaigns. Also sometimes referred to as spam. (laughs) Of course, this is prior to the days of GDPR or Castle compliance. But what we were doing at the time was being able to profile and personalize experience based on the data. And in this organization, they also had a digital marketing department that worked on search engine optimization and campaign optimization. So as a first job, it was fantastic because I was able to understand the data warehousing side of the business, but also how to apply those data insights to enhance digital experience. And so that was my my first foray into the space. 
Um, and then I think a lot of individuals who are in the you know, advertising and marketing space, I had that itch to get into the traditional ad agency. Um, and so did my time at a traditional ad agency in the strategy realm. And what I really loved in the strategy world was thinking through business challenges and going through competitive analysis, understanding what is this business truly up against and how can we solve those problems? And while I loved that business proposition, I missed the data. And that really led me to my career in marketing science, where I'm allowed and encouraged to lean into my business curiosities, but root them in data insights and numbers. And so that's where, where I found my sweet spot was starting in the data realm, then moving to strategy and finding a way to combine them together. That's awesome. So changing gears a little bit, uh, we have three questions that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Uh, and they're more about just to get to know you as a person. Uh, the first question is, what have you done recently for the very first time? I have gone ice skating, which I know makes me a terrible Canadian. What? I know. <laughs> I know. That's I just amazing. Know <laughs> <laughs> it makes me a terrible Canadian, but I, you know, I've gone skating. I pushed myself beyond my comforts, was very sore the next day. Um, but I think that's something I've tried for the first time um, and will look forward to doing it next winter. But Did not you get till some next wide winter. eyes? I need when, were you renting skates and <laughs> going like, this is my first time? Were, were people like, are you from out of town? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just tried to keep a very low profile and a low center of gravity. That was my move. Yes, that's key. Yeah. That's definitely key. Yeah, it's like here in in Denver where we are. If if you've never gone skiing or snowboarding, people are like, "What?" <laughs> and you yeah. live here? I know it's same same with Canada. I'm almost regretting saying this on the podcast. I feel like I'm going to get some heat from my fellow Canadians <laughs> with this. <laughs> <laughs> We're all individuals, complex layers. Yes, of, you know, here we go of wonderful and unexpected. Uh, <laughs> so our next question is. If you were to be invited to a show and tell right now, what item do you think you would bring and why? I think I would bring a photo of my family because I think there are unlimited stories that come with that. Um, I truly share all my success with my family because I've learned so much from their experiences, their guidance. Um, and so I think bringing a photo of them really shows who I am. And there is definitely no shortage of stories that will come with that. Awesome. So I love that. lovely. Uh, and our final question is, uh, if you were to meet a version of yourself at a younger age, what piece of advice do you think you would give? I love that question. I think, I think I would tell my younger self to realize that modesty, humility can coexist with grit and drive. I think that I still continue to learn and grapple with this. And I think as females in tech, this is a common theme where you feel that if you assert yourself, you're going to be seen as greedy or aggressive. And even the term aggressive doesn't need to be a bad thing. I have a tendency to want to push myself for more, but making sure that I still remain modest and humble. And I think that understanding that these two seemingly diametrically opposed principles actually need to coexist to make for a well-rounded person and professional is really important. And so not being you know, afraid to lean into the grit and drive is something I wish I realized earlier in my career, but so grateful that I have and I've found my voice. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. I think it can be 
hard to feel like you're not asserting yourself, but remembering that your voice matters in the room, no matter who is in that room with you. And I mean, and while not forgetting that empathy is so important in such a powerful tool. And yeah. again, they don't need to be mutually exclusive. I love that. Is there anything that you want to plug specifically that Valtech is working on or where people can find you or Valtech online? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, feel free you know, for those who are listening to reach out on LinkedIn. My name is there and I'm always happy to connect with individuals, be it for mentorship, career advice, um, or just to network and talk about you know, the space of data and how to apply to a business. Because as you know, evidence in today's conversation, there's a million and one conversations to have based on just that one word of data. So absolutely feel free in Valtech's website, Valtech.com. You can check us out and see the type of work that we're doing. But yeah, I think that this has just been so fantastic to be able to have this conversation. I feel so honored that I was able to come speak to you. I've listened to your podcast before and the roster of really impressive guests that you have had an amazing conversation. So honored to be in the lineup. Well, thank you. We, we feel the same way. I mean, it's yeah. uh, the wisest people are often those that can take something that's ostensibly very complicated and 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 make it seem very not complicated, very easy to absorb. And I feel like you yes. did that today. So thank you so much. You're listening to a Brand Folder podcast where strong brands live here. Join us as we build the Brand Collective, a podcast for anyone curious about the people behind the brands that we all love. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. And if you feel inspired, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Until next time, this has been the Brand Collective.